Welcome back, brothers and sisters, to our podcast, From the Bridge. I'm Rick Jones, your host, captain, and guide to the world of event marketing, communications, and sponsorships. It's now the middle of October, my very favorite month of the year. It's the middle of college football and the start of college basketball practices. Both sports have had to, in so many ways, reinvent themselves this season of the COVID-19 virus. And the change in scheduling protocols and procedures has been pretty impressive. So it's appropriate that uh, today's show is all about reinventions. My guest angler, Trip Durham, knows a whole lot about reinvention, and he'll be here to talk about his reinvention journey. We'll jump back up on the old soapbox and get back out again on the road with Rick. So let's get this party started. I know a thing or two about reinventing your business model. For many of our listeners, this year's unprecedented challenges has forced many small and even large businesses to reinvent their business models. Sit-down restaurants have had to pivot to become takeout only with a limited menu offering. Car dealerships have brought cars to your door for test drives. And many in our business of event marketing have learned to create and execute virtual events since we could not gather together in groups. You hate being forced to reinvent your business, but the truth is reinvention is often the very best thing you can do to grow your business and remain relevant. I've reinvented my career on several occasions. I started as a high school teacher, coach, and administrator, then became a college soccer and basketball coach, then went back to graduate school and started my now long career in sports marketing, first as the marketing director for Georgia Tech Athletics. I then went to work at an agency, Conan Wolf, working on sports projects for companies like R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, the University of Georgia, and Road Atlanta. Then after one year, I left to start my own agency, and I've worked mostly for myself the past 34 years, and yes, that makes me old, but I've reinvented the core of our various agencies over these 34 years many, many times. You've heard me repeatedly say that I believe in business. There are riches in niches. I talk a lot about that in my book, The Business Tithe, which again, I've told you before, but I'll tell you again, you can get for free by emailing me your email address. If you'll send me your email address, I'll send you a copy of The Business Tithe electronically. My email address again is rick, R-I-C-K, at fishbaitmarketing.com. But here are some highlights about my agency's reinventions. Each of my three previous agencies, while sharing the corporate sponsorship marketing space, had entirely different target customers. And let's face it, you build businesses around customers. It's not about your business. It's about what your business can do for somebody else, your customers. My first agency called the Strategic Group was an agency that had evolved from my first, very first agency called Rick Jones and Associates to strategic sports specialist and then ultimately to the strategic group as we grew from a locally relevant firm to becoming a nationally recognized agency. That agency focused on both consumer food product manufacturers like Nabisco and Kraft and Frito-Lay, where we created and implemented trade and consumer marketing activation programs, and also working for leading grocery chains like Kroger, Raley's, Bruno's, and HEB, to name a few, to whom we sold title sponsorships to community-oriented events like PGA Tour golf tournaments. Our unique speciality grew out of our understanding of both grocery retailers and food manufacturers and how they would play and work together for the benefit of consumers and for the benefit of the communities they served. My second agency, the Gym Group, focused on activating sponsorship programs 
basically for Fortune 100 companies who sponsored large sports and entertainment events like the Olympic Games or World Cup Soccer or the NCAA Basketball Tournament. These clients included people like Sears, Bank of America, UPS, among others. This agency became recognized globally as we activated programs around the world. But my third agency, the current agency, Fishbait, initially focused totally on college sports. We represented college football and basketball coaches trade associations and therefore the collective group of coaches. And we sold corporate sponsorships to companies who wanted to use these highly recognizable coaches in their marketing programs. We also sold assets from both special events run by the coaches trade associations and the charities supported by these coaches organizations like the American Cancer Society's Coaches versus Cancer Program or the uh, Parent Project Duchenne's Program, Coach to Cure MD. And our customers included both these properties within college sports and the corporations who marketed their products and services to college sports fans. We have since expanded to reach the same type of consumers we reach through our college sports activities with ESPN and others. These fans come from what we call flyover states or heartland states, and we reach them through the tribes that are important to them in areas like college sports, country music, outdoor sports, food festivals and competitions, and now historical venues. As you can see, while being very similar, each of these businesses had different and very specific customer targets that led to different business niches, different models, and led to different reinventions. So my question for each of you today is, do you need to reinvent your business? My guest angler today is my great pal, Trip Durham. Trip owns his own agency, 2D Consulting, and has simply reinvented what he does throughout his career. I'm thrilled to welcome Trip to the bridge. Trip, we're glad to have you today. Mr. Jones, I appreciate it. As I look at the lineup and as I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts, I am absolutely flattered that you would think to include me. That's uh, that's like being in the Hall of Fame with all these other names. Well, no, you, you. You, you, you're, you're not being fair to yourself. I mean, you're a guy that I have such great respect for and have enjoyed watching uh, your career and all that. Now, you're, you're, a, you're a North Carolina boy. Uh, did you grow up in Burlington? Is that where you're I from? I did, yeah. and I spent uh, – I actually did some inventory on that a couple of days ago. I think I spent all but about seven years of my life here in town. Wow. Yeah, not bad. That's pretty rare these days um, that you didn't get uh, led away at some point. But, you know, you find a good place and you kind of like to stay there. Yeah, and I think that's part of the topic by which we're dealing with today. I think at some point in your life, you either chase a job or you chase a lifestyle. And in my world, eventually my wife and I, Caroline, we decided that we were going to try to chase the lifestyle. And if the job happens to come along, great. So that was the route we took. I think one of the side learnings coming out of the COVID-19 coronavirus is that people have realized the grass isn't always greener. (laughs) I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think for the longest time, a lot of us have stood on that line, you know, used the, the tool time reference with Wilson being on one side and Tim Allen being on the other. I think a lot of us stood on top of the fence and looked down at both Tim Allen's lawn and Wilson's lawn. And, you know, they're both pretty darn green if you take the high road and think about it. Well, I, I do believe that people had had to stop the pause, and they kind of realized the only thing in the rat race are rats. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that maybe, maybe, just maybe, pursuing a life was every bit as important as pursuing a living. Agreed. My old man used to say that in the rat race, he was just trying to stay a lap ahead so that the rats <laughs> wouldn't get lap money on him. I like that. And there's something to that, I think. I like that. That's kind of like the guy saying, you know, if the bear's coming, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. 
Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, so that's the that's the deal. Let's go back to the beginning. You kind of had a pivotal moment, I think, maybe in junior high school that kind of led you uh, to uh, what you've done as a PA announcer. Talk about that a little bit. The older I get, the more I'm fascinated about about the randomness of life and the moments that take place. And I think if you're smart enough then to reflect on those moments, that maybe it'll make you a little bit stronger moving forward. I'm walking down the hallway, bottom floor of my high school, Williams High School in Burlington. And at the moment, I go walking by the athletic director's office, who is also an industrial arts teacher or a drafting teacher. He stepped out in the hallway and he said, Durham, I need a public address announcer for tonight's JV football game. And Rick, I knew at that moment at 15 or 16 years old, I knew squat about being a public address announcer. But I think a lot of us at a young age did not want to disappoint an, an elder. So I told him, sure, I'll do it. Got up into the box that night, uh, rainy Halloween type of night, late October. Uh, might have been seven people in the stands. And I looked at my spotter and I said, uh, what do I do? And we sort of figured it out on the fly. And it's uh, it's an experience that in the mid to late 80s really stuck with me. And over the years as a hobby, it has been my privilege to handle public address, uh, MC work, moderating work for a great number of agencies and institutions. And it's just been an absolute blast. So a cornerstone that was laid for me, and I did not even know it at the time, but boy, sure glad I walked down that hallway that, that morning. Well, a couple of points on that. One is uh, I've mentioned on our podcast before that my partner Ron Cook says that coincidence is when God chooses to be anonymous, mm. that there's really no coincidences in life. There are things that were predetermined and meant to be. But we had my buddy Vince Thompson on a couple of weeks back, and, and he mentioned that he was a freshman at Auburn and had a class that was taught by David Housel, who was the sports information director. And and David just kind of mentioned, you know, and if you want to work in sports information, come see me. And Vince got up before the class was over and came up to him and said, I, I want to do it. And he said, come to my office. And mm-hmm. that led him on the path. You know, if you ha- you know, it would have been easy for you as a 15-year-old to say, uh, no, I don't feel comfortable doing that. No, you got the wrong guy, but you didn't, you, you know. Well, and I was a bit of an introvert back then as well, so socially awkward, and I think a lot of people at 15 are. So to your point, and I appreciate you giving me that booster shot, I never really thought about it in those terms, but I was extroverted, I was proactive, and I did say yes. So yeah. I wonder why I did that. Well, you, you, <laughs> but, but uh, there's a lesson out here for the listeners, you know, take a chance you know, what's mm-hmm. the worst thing that ever happens? I, I, I mentioned in the in the Vince Thompson interview, you know, that, that the reason I do an audio podcast is I have a face for radio. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, but but I did date a lot of really pretty girls for one reason only. I ask, you know, <laughs> what's the worst thing that happens? They say no. Correct. Um, you you got to take chances in life. And um, I, I've always believed in chances and, and you've done a similar kind of thing. So let's talk about your journey. So uh, did you where'd you go to school? Wilmington? No, I went to East Carolina. You went to East Carolina. I, and Green, I did. Greenville. I applied yep. to five yep. or six different <clears throat> colleges, and they were the ones that said, sure, we'll take you. Well, I drove through Greenville the other day, coming back from the Outer Banks, and I was shocked at how big that campus has become. <laughs> no question. My goodness. I bet for those that, of you that go back there, you've probably seen a whole lot of changes. It was a pretty small uh, state school at the time you went there, wasn't that's it? Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And then what happened? What? So you get out of school and what happens? Well, the idea was I went to East Carolina with the intent of being a communications major. But after I got into the program, and I'm not throwing stones here, it just didn't sit well with me. I just didn't like the rhythm of it. So it came to that point to where I knew I had to major in something, had to declare in something. And that morning I looked in the mirror in my dorm room and I was like, well, you know, mom is an English teacher. My brother who's coming up behind me when he goes to NC State, I think he's going to major in English, so I'll, I'll be an English major. Marched down the hill, signed up, and so when I got out of college, my first job was a teaching assistant at a high school here in Burlington, and after about six months, the governor at the time was going through some pretty severe state cutbacks, 
So in education, they decided last hired, first fired. And so I was given my walking papers. I had spent my summers in college working with the minor league baseball team here in town. So I decided after I was dismissed from the public education system that I would send, it was 161 letters, one to each of the minor league baseball franchises within the country. I would send a letter to them saying, here's my resume, here's my portfolio, I'd like to chance to interview with you. Rick, you got to remember at the time, this is 1991, and the best that we had in terms of electronics and typewriters was a brother electronic typewriter. So it was literally 160 typing. different letters. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, and I received a wonderful amount of rejection letters. The logos, the artwork, fantastic. Uh, four clubs told me that they would offer me an interview, and one was Larry Schmidt, who at the time had the National Sounds, had the Birmingham team, I'm sorry, the Huntsville team, and also had Winston-Salem. So I drove to Nashville. He offered me a chance. He said, you pick the club, and I picked Winston because it was close to Burlington. Three and a half great years there. Larry Schmidt sells the team to Don Beaver, Don Beaver, who had owned the Hickory Crawdads at the time, brought in his own people, and there really wasn't a place for me. So I was asked not to come back the following day. Now, if you're keeping track of this, Rick, that is me being fired twice. Well, that that causes for reinventions, whether you like it or not. Well, and at the time, my wife and I were literally on the doorstep of of being married. So there's a little bit of stress that goes along with it as well. Uh, Go through a little bit of unemployment, find myself as the promotions director for a local radio station in Greensboro. And after about four months of that, because of a previous engagement with Elon College as their public address announcer during the 94-95 season, they asked if I would be willing to be their director of marketing. They had only been Division Two for a couple of years, having moved from NAIA to D2, and they were looking already at moving to Division One. They needed a marketing office, a radio operation, corporate sales. I said, I'd love to do it. It's right here in my hometown or in my home area. And so... Over about 14 years, being at Elon, I was really able to catch some wheels collegiately. It's where you and I met for the first time. I was fortunate enough to be the president for NACMA. So we get to March of 2009 after an athletic director change had occurred about a year and a half previous. And new administration didn't really see me factoring into things. So again, on the tote board, fired for a third time. And at that point, Caroline and I decided, are we going to chase the job? Are we going to chase a lifestyle? She had a pretty established role within hospice here in our area as the CFO. So we decided, well, if I'm going to move, that means you got to find a job. Or we stay here because you're established, and I just figure it out. And that's what I did. I tried to figure it out. And thankfully, 10 years as of May of 2020, my business is 10 years old. And that's just sort of where we are. Well, 2D consulting, one of the interesting things is that you've done so many different types of things. I know we, we worked together on a really cool project we down did. at the University of Louisiana Lafayette that was really a lot of fun. But you've awesome. done a lot of different things. Talk, talk about some of the things you've done. In fact, you've done economic development. You've done some sports tourism stuff. You've done some collegiate stuff. Let's talk about yeah, it. Yeah, so we, we I don't know how you look at it on an extreme, but you could – make the argument that on one hand, I have worked with a Division II institution uh, assessing their external relations and how it is they may be more of an impact and receive more benefit from that impact within a small market. And then on the other side of the extreme, worked with Dave Raymond and our friend David Knopp with Steamboat Springs Resorts in putting together a mascot stampede. So bringing 20 Division I mascots to the resort for not only some continuing education because the mascots love them to death, but they never get the education that they really should get. Uh, and then some light Olympics out on the slopes. So the, the wide range of activity sort of fits within the interest that I have. And where I think the Jack of all trades has for years been a negative, right? Jack of all trades, master of none. I think now that we're in this 2020 
cycle of craziness and we're going to move forward for some really a lot of weirdness over the next couple of years. I think being a jack of all trades may actually turn out to be a benefit that there'll be less of a stigma because there are going to be employers and agencies who are going to need somebody that can sort of spread their talents around in different areas. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think I'm not going to be able to afford five specialists. I need to hire one generalist who can do all five jobs. That's a, it's a I, great I mean, way to sum it up. Yeah, yeah. I, and I really do believe that. I think that's going to be a change. The other thing I laughingly tell everybody is it's going to be good to have a little gray hair. Um, No, no, I I think people are saying, I I just don't have time for a learning curve. We're desperate to get things done. I want somebody that's been there and done that. And I I think that's going to be a differential. Talk a minute about when did you start doing work at Duke? All right. So there's a bit of a long story, so I'll try to make it as short as I can. I, I mentioned the a chance to ascend, ascend, elevate. Uh, okay, elevate. That's another bad word. Uh, the chance to move up to be the president for NACMA. Uh, at the same time that I was tracking to be the president, Kevin White at Notre Dame was tracking to be the president of NACDA. So I got to know Kevin a little bit in the hallways, but not a whole lot. And after my dismissal from Elon, Uh, Kevin was about a year at Duke, and Duke is only about 30 minutes away from where I am. So Kevin was gracious enough to offer me an audience for a couple of minutes. It was on the prelude that, Kevin, I'm not asking for a job. Just wanted to let you know that I am a resource and I'm only this far away. So after meeting with Kevin, he said, I need you to go meet with this guy and I'll have him call you. Well, this guy was Boo Corrigan, who was on his staff. And by the time I got back to the office, Boo had left me a voicemail. Trip, I'd like you to come back. We'll, we'll sit for a little bit. The next day, I'm in Boo's office and he says, let's walk down the hallway. I need to introduce you to this guy. Well, this guy is Art Chase, and Art was at Presbyterian College. He was heading up sports information at Duke, and uh, I knew Art when he was at PC because Elon and PC were part of the same conference together. So Art said, look, I think we're going to need a new public address guy for football. Here's some copy. Do you mind reading it, sending it back, and let's just see how it sounds? Cut the tape, sent it in, and about two months later, I got a call from another member of the Duke staff and said, look, we'd like to offer you football. But our volleyball coach walked by our office while we were playing your your tape, and we would like to have you public address volleyball as well. Well, at the time, Rick, I figured if I could get my sound in that building, which is Cameron Indoor, with volleyball being my entree, if there were a change ever to occur, hopefully I've ingratiated myself enough and they understand who I am in that building, so they would ask. Wasn't trying to be pretentious about it, wasn't trying to be egotistical, but just just trying to think strategically. Well, sure enough, Dr. Art Chandler, who had been the public address announcer at Cameron Indoor for 40 years, had only missed two games in that time. He announced his retirement, and Duke had just come off winning the Final Four in Indianapolis in 10. I was invited to the Duke campus on July 13th of 2010. You don't think that date sticks out in my mind, do you? <laughs> And in sitting in the director's chair or in their office, they asked me to sit in this chair over there. And that chair happened to be one of the bench chairs from Indianapolis from a couple of months ago. And so as I sat down and I'm getting cold chills now, Rick, as I'm recounting this story to you, uh, they asked if I would be willing to serve as public address in Cameron Indoor for men's and women's basketball. And I don't think the sentence finished. I think it was still hanging in the air when I said yes. So I said at the beginning, I'll try to make it short. I don't know how no, short that no, was. That's, no, that's a terrific story. And again, you, you, you're in the right place at the right time, raising your hand and saying, absolutely, I, I'd like to do this. You know, you, you get to work in two really iconic venues. Wallace Wade Stadium is a pretty special place, I think. And yeah. Cameron, there may be not be a more special place. Well, what that. I love about Cameron, and this is, I'm not trying to kick Wallace Wade and our conversation to the side, but what I really like about Cameron is that when you open the door to walk in, it still smells like a gym, even after all these years. And we remember what that smell was like when we were a kid, either for a college venue or high school or rec league, a gym just has that smell. And I think that adds to the brilliancy and the wonderful nature that Cameron Indoor is. You know, a lot of people may not know that uh, the Wallace Wade is 
was the site of the Rose Bowl. That's right. Um, that that in the forties, when we worried about the Japanese bombing the California coast, they moved the Rose Bowl about as far away as they could, and they moved it to Durham to Wallace Wade Stadium. So yeah, and all the players yeah. came in on trains. Yeah. Right, it turned out to be a real big festival. Yeah. Well, you've called football and basketball in in, in in pretty cool eras. I mean, I think David Cutcliffe has done an amazing job in football, and obviously mm-hmm. Mike is is you know the legend that he is at Duke. What's your most thrilling moment? Um, one that really stands out was Jim Beheim and Syracuse coming to Cameron for the first time. And Beheim decided that he just wanted to leave the game early <laughs> because of a bang, bang, block, charge, call, no call that happened in a pivotal moment of the game. And Beheim races up the sideline to contest the call, rips off his sport coat, and then takes a hard right. Well, from that bench, taking a hard right means you are now on the playing surface. And it didn't take long for Roger Ayers to offer two technicals to Coach Beheim, And so the hype that was heading into that game with the two friends meeting for the first time in that building, and then the way that it ended with Beheim receiving an ejection, that really stands out. And then of the 10 North Carolina games that I've had the chance to be a part of, uh, having grown up in this area, uh, area, knowing what that rivalry means, and then being able to sit at the table for those 10, win, lose, or draw, the environment and the circus that sort of comes with it. Uh, it's just a lot of fun to be a part of. Yeah, it can't be anything better than that. It's pretty special. A Duke-Carolina game in Cameron that's, that's in many times is the last regular season game of the year. They that's alternate right. that, I think. I think they mm-hmm. always play last, but you know they alternate whether they play first in Correct. Chapel Hill or play in Durham. That's – you know, and it's always you got ESPN, you got all the t- top people there. It's just, just, just craziness around that. That's uh, that's pretty special. Now, you've also done some work for the ACC. I know at ACC Media Days, and how would that start? Thankfully, again, being in proximity to Greensboro, I'm only about 20 minutes to the east of the Grandover Resort where the ACC office is located. And over the years, I've had a chance to develop a a couple of relationships that one conversation leads to another. And uh, I say this in in great regard, uh, Mike Hogwood, who's a longtime voice for Raycom and a personality that was tied in really well with the ACC while he was alive, he had gone through a a bout of a, a cold and he was really hoarse, really raspy. And because I had done just a smidge of work with the ACC, they decided that Mike's voice was not up to snuff to be able to handle a couple of engagements during a particular stretch during the spring years ago. And so they gave me a call and said, we really need a voice. We trust you. Do you mind? Rick, I think you know as well as anybody that if you work really hard for someone and if you give it your absolute top-level best, then hopefully that positive association will carry through. And thankfully, over the years, the league has offered me to handle not only the football media rouser, but basketball. Uh, I've emceed several special events for them. I've had a chance to handle public address for both the women's tournament and the men's tournament. And it's a pinch yourself scenario. And there's a lot, Rick, I believe that the older you get, the smaller the world gets so that the more that you're moving in circles and if you're doing the job the right way, you're going to find that you happen to know more and more people or more and more people happen to know you. And again, that comes with maturation. That comes with just, as you said, being a gray hair, having the experience and just being around. I remember Michael Jordan one time saying, so I said, you know, it was a meaningless, basically meaningless NBA game. And they said, why, why, why do you play so hard every night? And he says, because some kid may be seeing me for the only time ever. Exactly. And that's such a great lesson. I mean, I think a couple of lessons have come out of today. One is, you know, t- take your shot. You know, when somebody says, hey, can you do it? You say, absolutely, and then we'll figure it out. Secondly, mm-hmm. be great every day because people are watching. And sometimes people are watching. You don't even know that they're watching. And if you suck, 
then they're going to say, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want this guy. You know, if you just mail it in. And I watch people sometimes mail it in. And, sure. and, and I watch athletes mail it in sometimes. And I, I really think, mm, why, why would you ever do that with this platform that you have? So, so the second lesson is try to do the best job you can ever do because that's going to lead you to something else. For those young people out there, how do you how do you look for opportunities? Well, there are several stories that immediately come to mind. And one is a piece of advice that I offer the young folks out there is that you never underestimate a handshake. When you're passing somebody in a hallway and they have the opportunity to meet Joe Blow or Mary Smith, shake firmly, remember the name. Um, when you think about when you think about life in general, if you're lucky enough to live a great number of years, there is a long play that's going to be involved that you have to think long term about just about every business decision that you make. Now, you don't need to be paranoid about thinking long term, but it is such a long race. And there are young folks today in Gen Y and Gen Z, probably a little bit more with Generation Y than Z, that think, I got to have it right now. What is my payoff right now? And if you think about where it is that you could be 10 years from now, and in today's environment, that could look totally different than it does right now, then if you're patient, you can get there. I, I'm not a big fan of the idea that you have to push so hard to find the right now, because I think in doing so, you close your brain to the opportunities that may exist elsewhere. When I went through my, if you kept count earlier, when I went through my three transitions, I decided early that I just absolutely couldn't force anything. Even though I did the 161 letters to minor league baseball clubs, I knew that I wasn't going to send the letter and then send them another letter, then call them on the phone, didn't have email then, couldn't really pester them. So I decided to let it come to me. So there's a little bit of being proactive and a little bit of you just need to sit back on your heels, let the environment react, and let it come to you. Now, you can't do one without the other, I don't believe. You certainly can't just wake up in the morning and say, you know, I hope somebody calls me. Because hope, as you know, it ain't a strategy. No, it's not. But 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 I do believe that uh, being available is, is really important. I, I tell a lot of young people, when you get your first job, do the job they hired you really, really well. Yes. But look for another job in the building to learn. Yes. Be the guy that says, I, 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 I'll stay over the weekend and do that. I'll stay late tonight and help with that. You know, be that person that's always got their hand up. But be genuine about it. Don't be a sycophant just for the sake of trying to ingratiate yourself in front of somebody. Yeah, I I really believe that. You you know, don't be a phony. Be authentic. That's right. uh, And be willing to try to add value someplace. Um, The more I find in my career that I added value to others, the more value I got out of it. Yeah, because it's a it it is that give and take, right? It's that service above self that for what you serve, what you and I are both Presbyterians. We know the idea that you give unto others, right? And you, and you know that it's going to come back. You don't give with the idea that you know it's going to come back, but you give with the idea that maybe one day it might come back. Well, I, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm worried about, I, I, I'm, I, I'm really high on this, this generation, this young generation. I think they're going to do great things. But Agreed. one thing they have to learn is some patience. Yes. You're not going to get promoted, you know, get hired on Monday and get promoted on Tuesday and become a <laughs> vice president on Wednesday. It's just, you know, you know, it just doesn't quite work that way. I mean, I remember a few years ago, somebody said to my wife, she said, well, God, Rick was an overnight success. My wife laughed and said, yep. And it was a long night. Uh, you know, I mean, dude, you have no idea what we did. You know, John Maxwell always says, you know, somebody comes up to him and says, I'd like to do what you do. And he goes, great. Would you are you willing to do what I did to do what I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's what I think young people need to know. They need to know it takes time to really build your craft. Mm-hmm. It takes time to build the building blocks of your career. 
the baseball analogy, if you want to be a general manager, you have to learn to pull tarp first. I mean, that is truly the bottom of the bottom. And you can't understand what it is that your employees do unless you have done it yourself. You know, that axiom yeah. we've heard for years. Yeah, you know, Roger Goodell, he's the commissioner of the National Football League. He started at the very bottom. You know, George Bodenheimer started at ESPN in the mail room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, he said it served him very well because he knew everybody. He yes, brought their exactly mail. Right. I mean, so exactly when right. he as he grew, everybody liked him, and he yeah. knew them, and he knew them by yeah. name, <laughs> and he knew where they sat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it's interesting from that standpoint. All right, I want to talk. I want to switch gears for a minute. We we're in an interesting time, and I think you've got some insights because you've worked in the combination of economic development and college sports. Um, one of the things that I think people have not paid attention to this football season is how many small university towns were dependent on the economic drivers known Mm -hmm. as college football, and a lot of that went away. Um, So we've had a crazy, crazy year. I'm not sure that COVID caused all the problems. I've I've been on record as saying I think it just exposed some of them or accelerated some of them. But let's talk about some of the issues that you're seeing in sports right now and, 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 and what are some of the opportunities coming out of this? Oh, boy, you know, where to start? I joked with somebody not too long ago that, you know, every time you peel the onion back, there's another layer. So I just stopped cooking, right? I just stopped peeling <laughs> onions. Uh, the one that has really been at my teeth over the last couple of weeks, and this is a no great revolution, I'm sure, to anybody that's listening, but we've got four generations of people that we can market to these days. The boomers, X, Y, and Z. The boomers are probably split down the middle as to whether or not they want to come back when sports come back. Some are fearful, um, some because their parents were the ones that invented the cul-de-sac and the families got together every Friday night and drank out in the yard and were social. You know, those boomers probably do want to come back because that's part of their heritage. Gen X, we grew up on sports and we're just ready to be back in around people. We don't care the environment. We just want to do it. So from a marketing standpoint, uh, collegiately or professionally, yes, target the bejesus out of us. We're ready to go. Gen Y was starting to fall off the cart a little bit in terms of attendance. Parents weren't as active in taking their kids to sporting events. So as they grew up, they weren't accustomed to coming. So therefore, they weren't going to spend some of their their free time and their free dollars at a sporting event. Gen Z, I think we're just starting to figure out what their personalities are. And I think they are a little bit more willing to go to sporting events and to be in that entertainment crowd, but probably not as strongly as Gen X. So I say all that because if you're a marketer or if you're thinking about external relations, whether at the pro level or the college level, COVID has really started to shrink your target audience down. And that that scares me because when we do come out of all this, everybody's habits, literally everybody's habits will have changed. And if they've changed so much, and if you've got a more limited audience by which to market to, what does sport look like? Again, you keep peeling the onion back, you see things like this, Rick, and it, it concerns me. Well, I, I, you know, one of the things I pay attention to is game times especially in college football and, and even in college basketball too. You know, if you're, you know, if you're a college basketball Wednesday night game at 9, you know, p.m. in Starkville, mm-hmm. Mississippi, um, you know, you, your fan base can't get there. And so you're dependent on just those that are, you know, physically living in Starkville. And, you know, I, we, we did a tour a few years ago in the Big 12, and, and unfortunately I think we had seven of our – 10 stops were 11 a.m. games mm. because they were the noon Eastern time right. window. Well, that's a miserable experience for a fan. I mean, you don't mm-hmm. have time to tailgate. And part of it is you, you mentioned, you know, Gen Y's, um, you know, millennials have small children or children that are beginning to play sports. And in many cases, they're playing sports on a Saturday morning. If you've got an 11 o'clock 
game, you, 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 you're going to have to make a choice. And the mm-hmm. choice is going to be my kid's going to play his game. And we're going to you know, hurry home and watch the game on TV. Well, that doesn't bode well. So I think, you know, I don't, I don't have a solution for it because television still continues to be the, the biggest dog. But we've got to figure that out because it's not a good experience uh, in trying to plan your life and your, and your season uh, around the whims of when you may be on broadcast television. Right. So that takes me to the mid-major, Division Two, Division Three, NAIA, the NJCAA. What is it that you can do now to be empathetic, Rick, to your point, because I've got so many other things going on in my life with my kids. What is it that we can do to be empathetic to try to bring these people back to our campus? Is it game time? Is it the extra little widget inside of a ticket package how is it that we can make that emotional connection and even though the brand that many schools had built over the years created an emotional connection with their constituents i think we've got to take it even further again putting ourselves in their shoes foregoing what a coach may say of i want this person to be represented this way on my social media accounts this student athlete I think the marketing office or the external office says, no, I think, Coach, we're going to need to really play up the idea that it's teddy bear night because we need to empathetically have people want to come and get a teddy bear. We don't need the picture of your star point guard looking all tough and mean on that social media image. No, we need to attract the, the hearts of people, and we need to get them back. I'm, it's a, it's uh, a little yeah, ramble there, no, but that's no, just no, an example. I, I agree with that. I, you know, I, I think it's about creating a different kind of experience. Uh, we, we've been doing some work for Charleston Southern here in, in Charleston, and and um, they're the Buccaneers. And I, mm-hmm. I went to the AD, uh, Jeff Barber, and said, Jeff, let's do this. Let's convert your football stadium and turn it into a pirate ship. And, oh, by the way, a, a football game breaks out. And he loved the That's idea. Right. I mean, you know, let's have, a, a, you know, Treasure Island for the kids, bouncy castles, all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. Let's have different theme pod zones. And, oh, by the way, a football game breaks back because we're after young moms that want to bring kids in a very safe environment and give them exposure to a college campus and give them exposure to a college football game in a real safe and, and wholesome kind of environment. I'm, I'm really eager and intrigued by watching the FCS season this spring. Mm-hmm. Does that does that become a game changer? You know, well, you're what, after the holidays, yeah. right? The next big marker on your calendar are probably your taxes and Easter. And you know, you talked about the mothers, and when you think, and Rick, you may have taught me this years ago. When you think about who the social director is in the household, it is the mother. She is helping dictate. Oh, we're going to do this, or we're not going to do that. And so, what is it? that the FCS schools can do during that first quarter of the year to attract a family, you know, days are going to get a little bit longer after the solstice hits. So people are going to be a little bit more enthusiastic about hopefully wanting to go outside and stretch their legs a little bit. I think the SCS is in a position where they can really turn some heads. I think they can too. It's going to be interesting. And it'd be interesting also to see, you know, I, I say this all the time. I love college basketball, but the worst football game outrates the best basketball game. I mean, you can't put <laughs> enough college football on television, and it will be interesting to see if ESPN or others say, "Hey, let's 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 have spring football, let's have spring yeah. college football that that plays for a championship, that plays in an NCAA football tournament, and separate that from the big boys and find out, hey, it's pretty cool football." And there's a progression that ends up in Frisco, Texas in May for a national championship. So I'm really, really eager to see now that all the other conferences are starting back in the fall, it's left them kind of alone Mm -hmm. in the spring. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see. And it may be interesting to see do they even consider, you know, pivoting and playing all their games in the late winter, spring. And now there goes now we got another peel of the onion, though. The FCS schools have a chance to really tell the story. But have they furloughed or dismissed so many administrators now in which they can't aptly tell the story? And that that's a real concern for me right now. Well, I, I, I'm looking this week. You know, there's a lot of tragedies going on in terms of number of people being laid off everywhere. But in college athletics, it's it's it, I mean, hemorrhaging people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, literally hemorrhaging really, really good people that are now going to have to say, 
what's next. Well, you'd be a great guide for people because you've been there uh, and you understand, okay, sometimes bad things happen to good people. It's not your fault necessarily, but what are you going to do with it? You know, you you know, I'm a big believer in have a pity party for about 15 minutes. You know, go <laughs> ahead and have it. I mean, I'm serious. Have that pity party and get it out of the way. And then you just got to say, I got to go back to work. I mean, I, you know, I got to go back to finding a job. I got to go back to adding value. I got to go back to doing some things. But I think this is a fascinating year as we watch all the changes in college sports and all that kind of stuff. Give me one more uh, word of wisdom for we've got a lot of young people that listen to us because we've got a lot of sports management majors that are out there taking classes now virtually. And we've been kind of destination listening for a number of them. You're a young person. You're, you're sitting in a sports management uh, degree program. You're about, you know, you're a junior. You're about ready to get out. Give, give them some words of wisdom for what they should do. Well, you raise your hand, obviously. Say you'll do it for free and then bust your butt. I think that's just, again, part of the normal that we teach folks throughout the years of sports administration. I, I would encourage the younger folks to audit their social media accounts. Really take a look at what you've been posting don't do it in fear that somebody may look at you negatively, but do it in a way in which you're asking yourself, are my social media posts, are they indicative of my personality? Are they a good leader for me as people are learning about me? Because we know that social media accounts are, are mined all the time for information. Uh, I would think about how it is that you are calculating yourself. You've already said it, Rick, be bold, uh, but you've got to be calculated in how it is you're going to make your contacts, how it is you're going to approach your search. And I don't think uh, as a closing nugget, I don't think it hurts to actually invest in that job search. Uh, when I say that, are you going to lay money into creating a URL and a website for yourself? Are you going to take out a billboard in your area, much like I did in 2009, that says, hire me? Are there elements of your progression that you should actually invest in, put money behind? I think there are a ton of different ways that you can look at the next step. And, and not to shill, but if somebody wants to log on to the website at 2dconsultingllc.com and pick up a little bit more, uh, they're certainly more than welcome to do that. No, that's great advice. You know, I, I'm a big believer in the saying, if it's to be, it's up to me. You know, mm -hmm. don't don't be waiting for something. Go out in there and try to try to make something happen. John Maxwell, I'm a big John Maxwell fan. He tells a great story about his dad in the Depression. I mean, nobody had any jobs. So his dad shows up without a job at a hardware store and says, uh, I'd like to work for you today. And the guy says, hey, I don't have any money to pay. He says, no, no, you don't have to pay me. He said, let me, let me just work for you today. I just, I'll just i learn a new skill. I'll work. Mm. He said he did that about two weeks, and then the guy said, look, I can't pay you full time, but um, I, I can pay you a few hours. Well, what he didn't know is he'd been doing that every day at a different place. <laughs> he ended up with three part-time jobs that added up to one full-time job. Mm. Now, that's brilliant. That's, that's well, I mean, that's thinking differently. When the grandfather also needed a pursuit, and I've learned that about the human existence, we need to pursue something. So in that pursuit, not only did he find partly what he was looking for, but he kept his mind sharp, right? He stayed in a routine. He was able to be normal. And so when you raise your hand and say you'll do it for free, Forget about the money. Think about those intrinsic things about mind, body, and soul that you're able to fill during that time. That is probably 20 times more important. I just threw out a number. I could have said 80 times. That's probably 20 times more important than it is to actually then having money. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think having purpose in your life is the most essential thing you can have. If you don't have purpose, you're, you're, you're not going to go anywhere. And and I think those are great words for us to kind of end our conversation today. It's always great being with you. Thanks for joining us today from the bridge. Uh, thank you very much, Rick. Let's get back up on that old soapbox. Do you ever feel like you don't fit somewhere? 
Right now, I don't seem to fit anywhere politically. I would describe myself as a social liberal and a fiscal conservative. Well, that's not really true. I am a socially moderate and a fiscal moderate. I call myself an Eisenhower Republican. Uh, what, What would you say is an Eisenhower Republican? Well, in 1952, both parties tried to nominate General Eisenhower as president. That's how close we were then as Americans. I'm a moderate, someone who doesn't feel it's evil to actually compromise, who's willing and maybe even eager to hear others' perspectives because I might actually learn something. Someone in the middle of the road who will lean to the right sometimes and lean to the left other times. Is it just me, or are there any other like-minded moderates out there? I'm thinking about starting a new political party called the Centrist. We can't be any worse than the clowns we have in office now. Let me know if you want to join. And that's my latest view from the soapbox. It's time to get back on the road with Rick. Since we talked with Trip today, I'm going to mention another chain restaurant, which I rarely do, but this one is so good you need to try it the next time you're in North Carolina, because it's the only place you can find it. It's called Biscuitville, a small chain whose founder, Maurice Jennings, passed away just last month. He actually started the little chain in 1966. And yes, the name says it all, Biscuitville. I love breakfast better than anything, and they serve great breakfast, especially their biscuits. Now, they don't make biscuits daily. They make them every 15 minutes from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. each and every day. My favorite is the country ham biscuit, but they also have egg biscuits with sausage or bacon or chicken, or pork chops, or even country fried steak. If you love biscuits like I love biscuits, this place is for you on the road with Rick. How's that for a great show? Thanks to my friend Trip Durham for joining us today and for all of you out there listening. We'll be back with another edition of From the Bridge next week.